0: hello everybody and welcome to the html all the things podcast episode 26 tips and tricks i'm your host matt lawrence and joined again by my co-host mike coran what have you been up to this week mike
1: yeah matt uh so this week i've kind of been doing a lot of client work and also i don't know you, you and i were kind of doing a little bit of work on no bs news uh that's kind of coming into fruition uh again you can kind of you can go visit it right now at, in kind of the quote-unquote demo mode at uh, nobsnewsforreddit.com uh just check it out just keep in mind that not, not everything's finalized and there's some like ad placement placeholders where we're waiting for ad placement i'm sure that matt will kind of get into that right now on, on what he's been up to this week so what about you matt
0: yeah, so been uh, doing those publishing steps, like you said, with uh, with no BS news. And uh, one of the things that we're really struggling with is like we're really trying to use this project to have a, our first monetized app on the App Store, specifically on the Google Play Store. And w- while doing that, as we've already discussed, it's a PWA that we're putting on the the web store or on the Play Store, so it's like a whole experience. And one of the things that we thought was going to be straightforward was going to get AdSense because we've had AdSense on old sites before. However, one of our old sites, which is still up freephotoshamilton.ca, um I think it's .ca, just google freephotoshamilton and it'll come up. But anyway, um or one of our old websites freephotoshamilton had like used to have AdSense and then we kind of let it lapse because we don't really keep that project up anymore, um other than, like don't like maintain it kind of thing. And we I, – I kept kept adding ad units to our AdSense thing because we were able to log in and it really didn't seem like it was too big of a deal. And then for whatever reason, and I don't know what this reason is at all, we, we – like our sites menu disappeared. Um, there's some speculation in the forums and, again, I'm not like super invested in like why this particularly happened. But I can't add sites to our um, – I can't like add new websites, which is in like, a, a menu called sites on AdSense this is layers deep as you can kind of tell and basically what happened was is i noticed that it was asking for my phone number um after we had done the, verif- the the address verification the address verification was outlined in red which was sort of like you know an alert like whoa look out and so i didn't really notice this one because it was kind of blended into the ui so i typed in my phone number or whatever got the code did that and then it was like oh you're activating your account i had to fill out a form but most of it was already filled out for free photos hamilton so when i looked up that. And I'm not an expert here, clearly. So if I'm saying stuff wrong, it's because I'm new to it. But basically, it was it had all our free photos, Hamilton stuff all grayed out. Like it was, you know, you had already entered this. And you know, this is the like, this is your information in this form. It's just okay, do you want to submit? And so I submitted and it said, Okay, we found your ad code on your website, and you're good to go. Unfortunately, all that stuff was added via a um, a plugin or two. And one of them was the official Google AdSense plugin for WordPress, which is uh, deprecated as far as I know. Um, so anyway, so we let it like it, it verified and it said it was going to activate our account and you know, a day or less, um, you know, it has like that warning there, or whatever it says, uh, usually a day or less kind of thing. So we were waiting, and we waited over a day. And then I was like, well, the other like the first time it got approved, it was much like faster. And so uh, this set off this whole thing where I went onto the site and I tried to uh update it. So like as I thought maybe we needed to have ad units running, so I wanted to get one ad unit running. I had to update a bunch of plugins, which broke some stuff. Like if you go on there now, um, or as of me recording this, it's there's some stuff that's like very like minorly broken. But I'm gonna have to actually go into an old project that we don't support anymore, invest time in that to try to fix it so that we hopefully get approved. And the worst part about this is that this is all in an attempt to get access to that sites menu, because in our sites menu after this, there should be free photos, Hamilton as one of those entries. But then I need to add this new, you know, no BS news for reddit.com. I need to add that as, as one of the, as one of the sites. And then I have to wait for approval on that is how I understand it. So I went on the forums and some people from 2018 in December. So like recently said that, uh, they had been waiting approximately two weeks and they said that some some places are some places are still like a day but they said some countries and we're not in the u.s so i and it's all assumption i assume the u.s is probably still the the, the 24 hours or whatever it is or like the less than 24 hour period even though ours does say that uh, unless we're doing something wrong which we could be because I'm i'm trying everything at this stage clearly basically we're still waiting for approval days later and people are saying it's going to take possibly two weeks. And if that's the case, then it's another two weeks for ads on no BS news. So now I'm like, I'm going to basically my, my, my plan of attack is to organize all this is I'm going to try to fix up free Hamilton, just so, just such that it has, it has like a modern standard in terms of WordPress. It's going to be all up to date as far as it needs to be. I'm going to try to run one ad unit on the top and I'm going to, uh, whatever, like our ad code is in there to identify like what, what we want. Um, cause there's like a, there's like an official identifier and then you add ad units. So I want to have one it one ad unit running. Cause I got that first part done. Hopefully that helps push it along. I have a feeling that they haven't even looked at it yet. I don't know. And then once, once that is done, then we'll be able to hopefully apply for, no, for no BS news. But I don't think that's going to take very long in terms of preparing the WordPress part. So I'm going to prepare the WordPress part, get everything just just so so that such that it is acceptable for ads and whatever as far as my knowledge and then I'm going to be going and looking at um alternatives for the website to try to see if I can if, like in terms of monetization to try to see if I can get out of this week long thing because this was a 24 hour challenge that was supposed to be well on the store already and we're literally just being held up by like a process not even something technical as far as I'm aware anyway and from what I looked up again, I just looked this up. So please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, hit me with a DM on Instagram or a message on, on Twitter, because like, I am new to to this sort of advanced AdSense stuff. But basically, um, we can't email them for help, because we don't make a certain amount. And that's like right in their documentation. So it's like, once you hit a certain amount of income, uh, whatever, whatever that rate is, which I do not know what it is, or whatever, whatever that rate is, which which is zero right now for us, uh, then you're eligible for email support. And so I can't really do anything except for go on the forums and which people are already asking about it anyway. So I'm kind of in limbo at the moment. Um, again, if you guys have any tips, tricks or anything, addition, like uh, any uh, monetization tips, anything, please send us a message on any of those uh, social media. Cause I'm, I'll be glad to kind of have a discussion with someone who is, uh, experienced in this sort of area, especially monetizing PWAs, because we, we want this thing to be a fully fledged, monetized working app if we can. Um, however, let's jump into this episode because we are in a bit of a rush today. I got to drive some people to the, uh, to the hospital later today. So, um, let's just jump right in here. Uh, so this episode is going to cover our tips and tricks. Basically, I'm going to have a segment, uh, Mike's going to have a segment. So segment number one, Matt's tips and tricks, and then segment number two is going to be Mike's tips and tricks. I'm going to be focusing on things like CSS and the server infrastructure and that type of thing. And Mike is going to be focusing on uh, using various like JS tips and that type of thing, and some other procedural stuff. And then, of course, our recurring segment, Web News, uh, which is Software as a Service, talking about those pesky subscription f- subscription fees that are slowly invading all of our uh, all of our credit card statements. Um, but let's jump in right in here to the uh, very first segment, segment number one, Matt's tips and tricks. So the very first part here is going to be uh, server host server slash hosting management. So I'm going to be talking generically here, um, kind of as if you have either cPanel access or CLI access, or whether you have your own, you know, server and you've installed all this yourself. Uh, these are just sort of generic tips and tricks that you can use. Uh, some of them will apply to cPanel, some won't, etc. Just you know, use it based on the context that you have. But basically, um, always keep a backup and database. Uh, sorry, always backup files and databases that you won't be able to get back and in, back into their existing state. So common things like this include things like oh, like a WordPress update. So like a plugin, if you're really unsure about a plugin update, you should really just do like a full backup. Worst case scenario, you can always delete the backup a couple days down the road, if everything is, is running smoothly. Um, whatever your procedure is, some people do a couple weeks, some people do a week, some people do 72 hours. Um, if you update, and it's running fine, then you just delete the other one, whatever. Um Also, if you're migrating to a new uh, server slash host, so oftentimes there's like a shutdown that will happen on one of those ends, usually the old host. And generally speaking, uh, there will often be times where you... Like, where it just shut, shuts it down, you lose access to that other one, like, a little bit faster than you thought, especially if this is a custom solution. Like, a lot of modern hosts, you know, you usually just pay out the month, and, like, if you're just using a generic hosting service, you just pay out the month, and then that's that's it. Um, And you just kind of have the rest of the month, and you know when the shutdown's going to happen. But it's still, it's still a good idea just to pull those files off, because worst case, if something happens where, like, you get you get called away and you can't do the migration... Uh, at the time that you planned, at least, you know, you have the files and you're able to just upload the new files to the new server when it's convenient for you. Um, this also includes, uh, like if you're testing a new feature, so if you're testing like a new major feature, generally it has to be a major feature. You know, if you're just adding a social media link, you know, generally you're okay. But if you're testing a new major feature, um, you, you really should like actually take a full backup um, or at least a backup of those files that you're editing. Again, use this, use this um, according to your context, according to your experience with whatever you're using. If it's WordPress and you're simply installing a new plugin that isn't really affecting other plugins um, and it breaks your whole site, all you have to do is deactivate it more or less as long as you have access to that admin panel. But if you, think you're going to you potentially could lose access to that admin panel maybe you should be backing it up and in WordPress especially if you're new to it and we're not any WordPress experts but we do have a fair amount of experience with it um, in terms of WordPress you really should be like when you were first 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 starting out and you're just learning about plugins and that I'd be taking a backup pretty often um, depending on how much work you're doing and like a lot of these backups are going to be useless and quite large um, like for you specifically but just look up how to do the proper backup procedure so that it becomes second nature and then just make your own like make your own folder structure so you understand all that stuff like really bang out your backup procedure so that you're not annoyed by it down the line so you're just able to just be like i need to do this i need to back it up and you already have a file system and a procedure and a proper workflow already set up and ready so it's just basically muscle memory at that point um, also if you're adding a, if you're adding something that a, a client has requested but you personally don't think it'll work out um which will often often uh, result in a rollback so the, the client will actually say hey i don't like this actually like can we go back and my, like, sometimes it's easy to do, obviously, if it's a couple of social media links, like I mentioned, you just, you know, hide those or delete them or whatever they want done until they fix it. Or maybe they just want the feature gone entirely. But if they wanted a whole additional feature with a plugin installed and all this stuff, and then they're like, I actually don't like this. Sometimes it's easier to just literally roll back. Sometimes it didn't work out in a technical capacity and you had to, re- and you have to report to them saying, Hey, this isn't how we thought it was going to be. And then they're like, I don't want this anymore. Sometimes it's nice to just be able to actually roll it back rather than like uninstalling. Again, if we're talking WordPress, uninstalling plugins, you know, messing around with different features, you know, making sure the database is okay, testing it, like sometimes it's better to just say, okay, we're going back to the, to the day right before you said you didn't want this anymore. So just a couple of tips and tricks there, uh, something that will kind of relieve your stress when, when pushing to production, as we've talked in the past, pushing to production can be a real, a real pain. So... It's just one of those things that where oh I have everything so if something goes wrong I can always just re-upload this it's not a big deal it's not gone it's I just have to re I just have to push it back up uh, to the server. Um, also be wary if you have like CLI access, be wary of new commands. Um, again, especially if you have command line access, so that'd be in your server, or if you're have a VPS or something like that from a hosting company, like, you know, really be wary. Like I can't stress this enough of new commands. If you're not really into Linux or you're not really into whatever platform you're using, you could even be having a windows, um, VPS and you don't really know what the command is doing. This is especially true if you're, if you're, if it's aimed at deleting files or folders, this is like a really, really critical thing is, is just be wary of those commands, have backups of things, uh, make sure that you're not just running commands really nilly. Maybe if you have a test server somewhere, you know, absolutely go and test it on there. Just don't type in any command because, because we all know it. You go to stack overflow, you don't read the whole thread, you copy, You copy like some random command from there, you paste it in, and then bang, you know, you deleted a whole folder with subfolders, and that was somebody's blog post, one of your client's blog posts, and that's no good. So make sure you're wary of those commands. That's really, really critical. Also, have a recovery plan before you begin so that you can quickly and easily roll back your changes if something goes terribly wrong. And uh, planning this out properly may require you to take full backups, prepare a re-upload solution, uh, research reinstallation information on some software you are using, whether that be WordPress or Couch CMS or some other CMS out there or some other software or some other web app thing. Whatever you're using, there's tons of stuff out there that would require reinstallation upon a recovery. Uh, Again, depending on your whole situation. Just make sure that you have a recovery plan first. So you know, get that folder ready that has all the WordPress content or whatever it is. And I, I keep coming back to WordPress, but WordPress always comes up when it comes to recoveries and that type of thing, just because it is so popular. And so you know, have that WordPress content folder ready, or have those assets ready if you're if you're moving images around. And then if something goes terribly wrong and that folder gets deleted or corrupted, you can just delete the corrupted one and put up the good good fresh one. Write an FTP. So there's minimal delay, minimal downtime, you're not getting phone calls, you're not having panic on your end, just have that recovery plan. And like I said, it's, it, sometimes it can be in depth, you know, researching and all that stuff. But it really does alleviate a lot of stress when you are pushing to production, or changing things in production. It really, really makes a lot of sense. It And also, even if it doesn't save you in your first few times that you need to do something, it will save you one day, we've had issues where we've you know done changes before doing a backup and then it's a whole whole scenario and like like if if it takes down the whole site then it's now what do we do how do we roll this back and it's a whole whole disaster when oh i took an hour while watching tv to do a backup i just confirmed it was okay you know it's not super technical i'm just backing things up over ftp or whatever system you have and then bang you can just move along um with your day kind of just pushing everything back up and going back and you can report to the client. Hey, I had to roll this back or, Hey, this is what the status of this is, but it's not down. That's the key thing. Always try to avoid that downtime. That's killer, especially in the server world. Um, also have a testing environment. So like really have a testing environment that truly mimics your production environment. Um, preferably that, that that's exactly what you want. So, you know, don't be using NGINX in one and then Apache in production, uh, you know Apache and Apache hopefully you know similar versions similar versions of phP similar versions of this and that whatever you're using try to mimic uh your scenario your production scenario in testing as much as you can because you can always test things there sometimes you can even uh depending on how if it's public facing if your if your test server is public facing to some degree you can even show a client one of those changes that you think is questionable um on your test server and be like hey this is what it would look like do you like it and that that actually will completely eliminate if they say oh i want to roll it back you don't even you didn't even do it all you did was do it in in test and that's it and once you do it in testing it's going to be easy generally for you to do it in production you just you're gonna you know have a procedure written down um whether you documented it or whether you just remember it and whether you it's, it's usually in server stuff it's you don't have to write too much down in my experience a lot of it you'll remember um however things that confuse you you absolutely should write down um you actually should write down so that if you're doing it on your test server, you can easily push those updates to your production server without making a mistake. You want to have the same procedure, same successful procedure on your testing environment that you have on your production environment. So make sure you write all that stuff down if you need to. Sometimes it's just moving a file around. You don't really need to write that down. Um And... That's basically it for the server stuff. Um, there's a lot more tips and tricks I could get into, but that's kind of the real basics and real generic stuff. Um, maybe I'll do another segment in the future about something specific, more specific, like a cPanel or something. We'll, we'll see. There's a lot. There's a lot we could talk about, and a lot of things that we've we as server admins have always have done wrong over the years, and a lot of procedures that have saved a lot of us as well. Um, so I'll move on to more of the web development side. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, CSS. So. Don't be afraid of simply setting up a skeleton before moving on to a different part of the site so having a skeleton uh, of the top bar while while you know the branding is being figured out by another team or whether the client is getting their logo done or their colors done or whatever whatever uh, you know don't don't sit there and dwell and be like well i've started the nav bar but i have to wait no no no. you can set up the you can set up the skeleton of the nav bar and then just kind of you know that frees up that frees up some more time so you can spend on other elements you can just do the skeleton of the nav bar and then go work on the slider or you can go work on the contact form something that's more concrete uh, concrete that you know that you know won't really change too much um, as the project is kind of being developed so just that that's one that's one kind of actually kind of made like it's a really simple but a major tip because we oftentimes we'll get kind of like stuck bogged down be sitting there with this nav bar being like man i wish i knew what the color was and man i wish i knew this man i wish i knew that but you could be working on that slider and if you bang out you know an hour or two on each element let's say on each seg- little segment of the site the slider the contact form the nav bar now you've now those hours are already invested in that. And now that's that's saved a time later on. So you're not just sitting there waiting. And then when the when the client actually does come with the branding, and the full, um, let's say the full design spec, or whatever you were waiting for, you can just implement that part, you're not starting from scratch on each element. Also, especially with a nav bar, you're freeing up buttons and that type of thing for um, the back end dev, oftentimes the back end dev and Mike and I have had this exchange several times, they will the back end dev will oftentimes need to uh kind of talk, like talk to the buttons like change the buttons like move the buttons around make buttons like you know for them to test like oh they'll make like button one and the the uh, back end dev will be clicking on it to see if it it's affecting the database etc etc or they'll be setting up the structure of just the pages like just the the making sure their system dynamically generates the pages let's say and making sure that the nav bar actually navigates so you're really you're really freeing depending on your um your scenario in terms of your development environment with your colleagues you're really like freeing up a lot of time. And you're also possibly helping somebody else, especially if you're, you know, doing something that complements their work. Don't delay them as well. Just, just keep keep pressing on any hour that you invest is generally an hour that you don't have to do later. And that's really, really key. And that's something we've learned also in writing, especially these show notes. Once we start writing, it's fine. But we'll be sitting there being like, what, what should we name the episode? Don't get caught up on that. Just move along just just to it's a, it's it's a general tip and it's also a specific CSS tip. It's something that's really really critical I think in this business. Just get started and just go. Um also make your class names easily identifiable. So there's a bunch of like standard naming conventions that we've talked about in the past that you could use. However, if you're not using something like that, um you should be you should be able to identify what you like what what you named later on um, and also other developers should be able to identify what you named later on so example you know class names really easy is navbar, um, nav item footer top bar real easy real real like simple to understand and that also allows them if they are converting the project to have a standard naming scheme they're still able to read your class names and you know just you know find and replace all those class names and just replace them with a proper with like whatever proper notation that they'd like to be using, just just something just something that's really small and that we always learn in programming. You know, make your make sure your variables are descriptive and you can read them. It's the same thing with 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 CSS, but just with class names. They're essentially in terms of native CSS, they're essentially our variable names, and so you should be doing the same thing. Keep it simple. Keep it descriptive. Um, also comments, and this goes for other languages other than just CSS as well, but it's something that, um, I've kind of done for myself and it really helps me out. So, uh, comments, uh, should be done to clarify things for yourself in the future, um, or for other developers down the road. However, sometimes you, something, sometimes, uh, you understand something using references in your own head. So don't hesitate to make comments that are specific to you if you're actively working on the project using references that only you understand and then make the comments more generic for others when production hits. So whether that means you write a, a generic comment and then below it you add an additional kind of footnote to that comment or you're adding something that you understand it. So one of the one of the things uh, I think it was for Free Photos Hamilton actually one of the things that we did was I I could never remember the plugin names. I think we were using some sort of vendor plugin name and then we were using WooCommerce. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't remember the the plugin name uh, for the vendor. I think it was, I, I don't even remember it now, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember that name for whatever reason. And so I literally just put like, uh this triggers the vendor thing page or something. And I remember Mike back in the day was like, what are you, what the hell is this? But I knew what that was. And so it doesn't help him. And so, in, in a true production environment, I should do something that actually describes what's going on, but since I'm rapid fire trying to finish this site, and that's what we were doing at that time, that comment helped me. I look at it and go, oh, vendor thing? I know what that is, and I just move along. So don't hesitate to do stuff like that. Don't be too formal with your comments. In production, sure, make sure it's all good for your team and all that, but it, like, just Just, you know, just bang it out. Go, 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 go. Get it done. Make sure your comments allow you to quickly pick up on what's going on and then you just move along. Um, Also, test responsivity with true window widths and not just responsive tools. So sometimes these tools don't reflect exactly how different browser window widths will actually react. Um, And this can result in some really weird like overflow issues. So, you know, like the classic where the page is scrolling, you know, you're only supposed to be able to go up and down. But you're scrolling left or right a little bit, like there's a little bit of, little bit of wiggle room in there. That's because something's like overflowing; it's pushing itself out. Um, also, sometimes things can just break entirely where they're not confining to the proper window width at a certain size or whatever. the uh, The situation could be anything really, but it's usually overflow. and Oftentimes it's because people have only tested things within one of those responsive testers. So, you know, you right click on Chrome, you right click inspect element and you can click that little responsivity button um, and you can check the different device sizes and that type of thing. We use that all the time to be clear, but there's sometimes, and it's not. You know, it's not super rare. There's sometimes with that, with that tool where we'll be like, this thing is overflowing and it's absolutely not supposed to be like, I'm literally telling it in a CSS property not to overflow what's going on. And then I'll just take the window, that tab, and I'll literally just, just shrink it down to the size that I'm testing on like just physically the whole window and it'll work fu- work just fine or I'll test it on a phone and it'll work just fine. And sometimes just resetting, you know, opening and closing that responsive tool will fix it. It's just because, you know, it's just some sort of bug or something like that with the responsive tool. But it's absolutely something to keep in mind because when it first started happening on more of our complex projects we were like great we don't know how to use, like i don't know how to use css i guess cuz i'm telling this thing not to do it it's doing it anyway what's going on and then i would go and test it on the phone to see how bad it looked and i'd be like oh it actually looks how i think it's supposed to what's going on here so it's just a, a small but like really critical tip to save you some time is, is if it's acting weird just take a moment put it into like a real window width of you know 100 or not maybe not 100 but like 500 or whatever you're testing on you know, 500 pixels wide and be like, oh, okay, it is actually reacting the way I think it's supposed to, you know, I'm testing it on the device or whatever. It's working fine. Let's, you know, let's move along here. Let's, let's not dwell on this specific responsivity. So just something that we learned or or something that I learned over the years was don't always trust your tools, test the real thing, see how it goes. Um, Let's pass it on to Mike now for segment number two, which is going to be his tips, unless he has any comments on my tips.
1: Yeah, for sure. I have so I have a couple comments actually, Matt. Uh, so the last point that you had really resonated with me as well. Um, I had some issues where the de- the Chrome Dev Tools weren't displaying the app my, my application the same way that the device that I was coding on was displaying it, uh, and I couldn't figure out why it was. I think it was something to do with the pixel ratio though. Uh, so you can you can adjust pixel ratio, but even adjusting the pixel ratio, I couldn't get some of the elements to display. Anyway, so you definitely brought that up. Brought up the correct uh, thing. The the other thing I would say is test on the devices that you're going to be using the application on. Um, As many devices as you can, at least. If you have friends with some devices, you know, send it to them. Ask them to test it. Take some pictures for you and stuff like that. Just to use all the resources available at your disposal, uh, at your disposal to be able to you know get a good picture of how your application is performing, not just like the Chrome. Dev tools or just Chrome, uh, use all the browsers as well. They, they render stuff differently. Um, so that was definitely a good point. And the other thing is, is that your first point, the don't be afraid to simply set up a skeleton or, uh, in other words, don't be afraid to just start. That was a huge point for me. Like right now, uh, when I design we- like web pages, when I, when I start coding, um, I'm not a huge fan of CSS. I don't like HTML that much. I'm more of a front end dev JavaScript guy and back end dev, um, So when I do any sort of layouts, I kind of just quickly put something up on the page and start working on functionality. Uh, And that definitely helps me move forward instead of having to like dwell on the fact that, oh, I don't want to do this or, oh, I, you know, I don't want to get started. I want to just kind of work on functionality. Uh, Being able to just quickly get a structure set up uh, is a huge thing for me. And I I definitely use the skeleton structure first. And then I go back and I kind of adjust it and make it responsive and that in the end if I have to. Um, So definitely, definitely some good tips there. So thanks, Matt. I'll, uh, I'll move on to my tips, though, which are going to be just basically covering JavaScript. um, And I'm going to try to keep it mostly just base JavaScript, not going to get into too much uh, of our usual, like any sort of framework stuff. Uh, This is just going to be kind of very basic JavaScript tips for the for a beginner dev, and hopefully will help you will help you out. Um, So one thing uh, I learned while coding is when you have a, a big application with either multiple pages or it's a large single page application, uh, you're, I like to maintain a thing called a scope variable. Uh, so a scope variable in, in general is like, what's in scope at that current time, or in other words, it's a kind of a global variable. And you're you're told not to have a global variable or not to use global variables, but sometimes you need to pass state between files, pass state between, uh, you know, big functions and stuff like that. So what I like to do is I like to have only one global variable called scope and then add, you know, objects and variables to that scope variable. So I know anytime in my code where I see scope, that's using that scope variable that I defined initially. And, uh, I kind of use that as my place, like as my place of, you know, passing in objects. Uh, If you're into reactive frameworks, it's kind of like your state management system. Um, So this kind of helps your code be a little bit more structured uh, and it minimizes conflicts. It's not the ideal solution, I don't think, but it's definitely better than just having like, you know, 100 global variables and then having to manage that through all your files and making sure that you don't have conflicts with the same name and stuff like that. Whereas with scope, it's a lot more structured. Um, so that's my tip number one kind of thing. Uh, next thing is uh, use libraries when necessary. So when working on larger projects, you're always going to have that situation where you're going to run into a time limit. Uh, you're going to have to build out a lot of features. You have to build it by the end of the week. So there's some things that you're just not going to be able to build yourself, even though you know how to do it. Uh, so there's libraries that can really save you a huge amount of time and headache. So for instance, I recently had to create a searchable list for an application where, with the ability where the person, the user can type in uh, something in that list, and it'll auto-filter that list live as as you're typing something in. Um, so even though this is definitely something that I could have created from scratch, I didn't want to waste my client's time, and I had a deadline, and so I thought that was unnecessary. I did a quick Google search; it yielded all a plenty of well-maintained, small, feature-rich libraries. Uh, one was called List.js. Uh, it really exceeded my expectations. I kind of went through it. So th- there's some tips for picking a library, right? Like some there's some libraries that I would not suggest you do, but here's some tips, like some general tips for picking a library if you're going to go that route. Um, so make sure it has been updated in the past year at least. So sometimes libraries don't get updated at all over three or four years, and that can really put a hindrance on your code where, uh, you know, there's some features that don't work because some things have been deprecated. Uh, there's some security issues that, that could that could arise. There's there's many different things that, that, that could happen. So I like to make sure that at least within a year, uh, something's been updated. For instance, list.js, uh, that library was updated in the past month. So, you know, I, I, I'm fairly confident in, in the fact that it's maintained. Um, the next thing is is I really make sure that the documentation is really easy to understand and simple. Uh, I go through it really quick, making sure like, oh, I get that, 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 that. Uh, maybe it's, there's something that I kind of like don't fully understand, but that's okay. As long as I understand 90% of it, I feel like that, that I can move forward and, and use that application um or that library. The other thing is, is that I I always go to the open issues tab and I check how many closed issues there are, how many open issues there are. And then I look how the creator or how the community kind of interacts with each other in it. Uh, If people are helpful, if the creator is helpful in solving issues like in the closed issues tab and people seem to be satisfied with it or I, I can follow what how he's solving it and I understand and I'm, you know, you're okay with how he's helping, then I think that that's a really good indicator of how. Uh, of of using a library because you might run into an issue. I've had plenty of times where I have used libraries and been like, "Oh shoot, I can't get past this thing." So I'll either go in and try to fix it myself, and then I'll post in the help, or I'll go in and ask for ask for an like open an issue and ask for help inside of it. Um, it was a huge thing for me. Uh, so th- th- those are kind of like the basic tips for choosing a library uh, wh- when you're when you're out there and you need to get one of those uh, a functionality built out really quickly. Um, so the next thing is, do your best to write self-documenting code, uh, with comments being used only when necessary. Uh, this is kind of my strategy, and I've been using this throughout my code, and it seems to have been working fine. Uh, so what the thing is, is that I'm very deliberate in my function and variable names, and it it makes it really easy to go back to my code and understand what's going on in the future. So I've had to go back to you know two year old, three year old code, and I can usually understand what's going on just by reading the name of like. A function for instance if you're calculating tax on a product you know name that function calculate tax don't name it uh something obscure like calculate or math you know like don't don't give it a name that's going to confuse you in the future of what what this function is doing use the fact that we can use alphanumeric uh, letters to name your functions like you would you know write a book or something like that so name your functions name your variables make sure that they're very you know easily readable easily understood as you go through them uh and obviously when you need to explain something with comments explain it especially with choices sometimes in your uh in your code there will be some uh, some choices you can make where you know for de- for the dev environment you can put like 100 milliseconds for this or 200 milliseconds so it goes a little bit slower so you can d- debug it or whatever make sure that those kinds of things are definitely commented where you would change that where you would change the the dev environment uh, variables and stuff like that um, and then obviously if something's really obscure or something's very complicated try to add a couple of comments don't go crazy with the commenting but make sure you have a couple comments in there to know what's going on uh i i tend to avoid using too too many comments anyway Um, so the other thing is, uh, I try to avoid using ternary operators in code that has to be maintained over time. And a ternary operator is, uh, that like one line if statement, I don't know if anyone's ever seen it, but you can type it in, uh, to Google and check it out for yourself, but pretty much it's just a condition with a question mark and then the true expression. Uh, so if, if the condition is true, this is what happens. And then the false expression. So this is kind of the else condition after a colon uh so it's a one line if statement and i understand they they look really clean and they look really easy to write uh but the problem is it's not as easy to read uh, as a like a simple if statement if else statement and there's no real reason to use them uh because it doesn't make anything faster it doesn't like execution does not perform faster with the ternary operator as opposed to a regular if statement so it's really just you trying to use a new skill that you learned for not much good reason um or to, to look professional, quote unquote. Uh, so I, I try to avoid using ternary operators as much as I can. Uh, if, if I need to just toggle a variable sometimes true or false, I, I, I'll sometimes use that. Um, that would be the only case where I've actually used it in my production code. Um, so the, the next thing is, is refactoring, clean up your code often. And this is something that I really need to take my own advice on and go back to some of my projects and refactor them uh, especially client projects where you know time is money i need to kind of you, you need to present your client with a with a quote or a, a, an idea that you, we need to maintain this code in the future let's spend a couple hours go back and re and let me refactor the code Uh, make sure that it's maintainable, you know, to the years to come. Um, So with larger projects, code can get out of hand really fast. If you're programming at speed especially and do a lot of testing where you comment out sections, write new ones, and see the differences of those comment out sections, those kinds of like blocks of commented out code can add up and and really add to confusion and maintainability in the future. Like why do you have a bunch of commented out sections here? Like does this one work? Does this one not work? When you come back to it two years later, you won't know uh so the the idea is you want to go back and make sure that those are removed um make sure that the ones that you know the ones that are working are there and uh, properly named commented whatever um And then the other thing is you can sometimes preemptively create a lot of variables at the start and a lot of functions and then never go back and use them or use them once and then be like, oh, no, I can use a different function for this and then not delete those functions. So they're just taking up memory for no reason. Uh, You don't want to, you know, make a bunch of variables and not use them. That's actually taking up space and memory on the person's computer. Um, So make sure that you go back and definitely look through and delete those. Uh, They're also a prime candidate for compute for confusion. And a huge thing to do when you refactor. Oh, those are just a couple of things. There's plenty of things you can do when you refactor, like clean up spaces, tabs, however you, however you like your uh, code. Make sure you add those uh, those semicolons and stuff. Uh, I, I know that linting can do this for you, but a lot of newer developers don't want to get into all the different uh, tools like that right away because you want to learn how code is structured yourself first and then kind of use tools to help you. In my opinion, that's how you should go about it. Um and then the the last tip that I have is Chrome DevTools are your friend, and this is a huge one um i'm I'm potentially thinking about making a whole episode on Chrome DevTools, so I'm not gonna go too too far into this. I'm just gonna point out that they're a huge help for me on a daily basis and being able to put a breakpoint in my code and then view all the variables at that certain breakpoint, like what the state is of all the variables in my entire application at that breakpoint is a huge huge help when i'm when I'm testing my code um it definitely makes it a lot easier to to know where to put the variables, where to put the function. Sometimes I'll just put a quick function, put a breakpoint in, in there in that function, just see where everything's at, and then I'll continue writing that function. Um just using those using the tools that that are there for your advantage is definitely a huge help. And when like before I learned about Chrome DevTools, I was definitely much slower and uh you know using console logs a lot more uh, developer, uh, Chrome DevTools accelerated my development and also made me a better developer in, in, in total. So thank you to Chrome DevTools. That's for sure. Um, and that's really it for my quick JavaScript, uh, tips and tricks. Um, I don't know, I'm going to probably pass it off to Matt if he has any comments or I'll move on to the web news, Matt.
0: Uh, no, I think those are all, those are all super legitimate tips. And, uh, I think we're good for, I think we're good for web news because I think it's going to be quite, quite controversial and quite, uh, I like think it's going to be interesting.
1: This web news. I like think it's going to, going to drive some conversation for sure. All right, let's do it then. Uh, so, web news this week: software as a service. Um, now, we've kind of talked about this off and on in the in our uh, podcast. So, I'm just going to reiterate a bunch of stuff here, um, and then we'll have a conversation as we do as we usually do with Matt. So. Um, with most software company, with most software companies moving on to a monthly or subscri- or yearly subscription model, has standalone applications now become a completely a complete unicorn in our in- industry, um, like you know not software as a service applications. So paying only five to twenty dollars a month for a premium application seems like an easier sell to people than asking them for a hundred dollars upfront or a hundred or you know two three hundred dollars. But these five to twenty dollars at a month add up fairly quickly. And eventually like you, you can check out your, uh, your statements and stuff like that. And you can see that it's probably going to be a bigger hit on your wallet in the future. If you're going to be paying constantly over and over again for that application, um, knowing you never own the actual product is also a weird feeling. Like I know before, uh, you would buy a copy of Microsoft office and then, you know, it would sit there in a box and you could, you know, that you could just take it. If you have another computer, just install it on the computer, no money, nothing, nothing Uh, just install it there, make sure that it's like deleted off your old computer and you're good to go. Now that we don't have that, you kind of like, Oh, where, where is it? Is it in the, like, I have to be connected online. I have to go log into my account. Um, you know, I have to be paying this $20 a month. So it's not really yours. Like you never feel like any application is yours to own anymore. It's like, you're just renting it from, from them. Um, which is a weird feeling for someone that's grown up owning a lot of applications. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thought, like mind game that you have to play with yourself being like, oh, I can use this application, but it's not mine. It's, you know, as soon as I stop paying for it, it's gone. Um, so and then the the other like the, on the positive side um, for a company, having consistent recurring income is a huge bonus for them and allows them to plan much further ahead with features and support so that obviously that can trickle down to the user as well. Um, also very few yearly version upgrades happen. So like you don't get those, uh, you know, massive upgrades from, you know, 20, 2012 to 2013 to 2014, 2015, like you used to, uh, where you would have to migrate your whole team or your whole department to a new version. Uh, usually when you have a monthly subscription service, your version kind of just updates as you go, maybe on a monthly, maybe on a bi-monthly basis. Um, and you don't notice those upgrades as off as you would one of those massive migrations. So for an IT professional, I can see this being a huge help, uh, and a very, a very big driving cost factor too, because having to go through that process of updating all those computers is a lot of time and time is money in IT. So it can, it makes sense for them to, to consider a, a monthly or, or a yearly subscription model just to alleviate that cost. Um, so that that's a huge that's a benefit in my opinion. Um, and then in my experience, uh, companies that get a monthly subscription are less likely to abandon their product. Um, I know what just one quick app uh example that popped into my head was an app called Weather Timeline for Android. Uh, it was a really re- like the best weather app I've ever used at that point. Um, I think it was like three dollars to buy. Uh, There was no monthly subscription or anything like that, and everyone was like raving about it. It had really high reviews on the App Store. Um, people were like commenting about it on Reddit and like it was, it was a bit, it was a, for a weather app, it was quite a big deal for some reason. Um, but what happened was after a year or two, uh, I guess the sales slowed down and the people that bought it were still using it because it was a good application. And he was, the, the person that was developing it was using a, uh, kind of a service on, on his end where he was pulling data from a paid API. And so as the people kept buying it, and not paying consistently for it, he wasn't able to afford that API anymore. So he had to actually take it off the Play Store. Uh, He didn't delete, like, we didn't delete it on our devices, but he's like, I can't sell it anymore. Like, this $3, um, a one-time $3 fee is not cutting it, and I don't want to put a subscription model on people that have already paid for it and stuff. Like He's like, I'm just going to stop selling it because I don't want the headache. Um, And eventually it led to him actually selling his application to a different publisher. That publisher went in, stripped out a bunch of features that were costing, you know, the API money, made the application a lot worse and so on and so forth. So like those kinds of things are very much, they they happen less often with a monthly subscription model because you can always rely on that income coming in every month uh, from your subscribers. And you can kind of plan ahead a little bit more, like I said, in my previous points, um, so that, that I, I find that as a positive, like knowing you're paying monthly, but then you're going to be using this application for a while. So, um, it, it makes it seem more logical in my opinion. So those are kind of my positives and negatives and the the landscape that I see, um, the software as a service industry being in right now. Um, so the question is, what do you prefer a one, a one-time bulk payment, of $100 plus, you know, 100 hundred, two hundred $200, or a 5 to $20 subscription fee per month uh, for all your applications. So I'm going to pass it off to Matt to kind of give his input on that question.
0: I think honestly, I think those are really good points. Because one of the things that I always kind of thought with, with a subscription fee, and I mean, it is true, um, is that the companies want to have recurring revenue, they want to make more money, they want to have a more consistent income level rather than release a release an application, get an influx of cash, you know, the sales peter down and then they have to, you know, spin up a new version or spin up a new piece of software or whatever. So this is kind of like, you know, essentially revenue forever, assuming the application is still relevant and that's great for them so that they can keep up the support. And I really didn't think of it that much. Like I understood that that was one of the, one of the things that does happen, but one of the, one of the things I always equated it to was like them making an excuse. It's like, it's like when somebody changes something that is worse for the consumer in general. Companies and whoever is doing it is will start to fish for excuses. It's the same reason why, like a fanboy of something, will start making excuses for what they're a fan of if said thing starts to fail. Um, we see that time and time again. It's just it's just like a defense mechanism that we're using to be, to like you know either defer the consumer or defer our friends if we're trying to defend something we like that's failing. It's just, and that's kind of how i always equated it, but I never really thought of like the, the paid APIs, the fact that everything's live now. I didn't really think it through fully. However, I will say that I am a fan of subscription fees for things I use a lot. So I had kind of have like, I think it's actually all of them, although I could be wrong, all the Microsoft subscriptions, but I also use like use them to death. I have like the personal office 365. We have office 365 for business. Um, I have, uh, I have the Game Pass, Xbox Live, I have EA Access, which is like through, there's free EA, but it's through Xbox Live, whatever, however that works. So it's like, I have all of the subscriptions, but I use all these services enough that I really like that. And one of the things that I had actually discussed when Windows 10 was coming out was I would actually be down for... Give me five Windows licenses. I'll pay you X amount per month. And then that's it. And I can just have five Windows licenses. I don't have to worry about it. I type in my key. I have a similar license managing thing like I do with Word now with Office 365 Personal. And that's it. And I just, I can have it on five computers and I'm paying a subscription because I'm using Windows each and every day, multiple times a day on multiple devices. If something goes wrong with one of my Windows installations, I don't want to worry about OEM keys and installation limits and all this other crap. I just want... Here's your five licenses or three licenses or whatever they're gonna give you, and that's it. And 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 so I think it's really great when you use something to death. However, when you're using something occasionally, I think it starts to get a little bit ridiculous. One of the things I think is a little bit ridiculous, and it's a service that we use here at HTML, all the things, is medium. I have one of those medium premium or whatever the heck it's called subscriptions because a lot of the articles that were showing up in my recommended were like members only and so i signed up for that now i understand it's five a month whatever however much it is we're in canada so i'm not really sure what the conversion is and all that but it's like around five a month but it's five a month and then netflix goes up in price i use netflix to death but I, i told mike i'm like once it hits 20 bucks i think i'm out uh we got youtube you know you can watch youtube for free but they keep putting more ads So now it's like now that now you could potentially get ads on there uh, that last like a, you know, a decent amount of time and there's multiples of them. So now it's like a pain in the ass. So now you could potentially buy a subscription there, but I don't use YouTube a heck of a lot. I don't read a heck of a lot on medium. I don't, I don't use these services as much as like, I use Netflix a lot, but it's, it's still not quite enough at the $20 mark. Now it's still below that. I'm not saying it's at $20 by any means even in Canada, but it's still, it's still hitting the point where I'm just getting sick of paying these subscription fees in terms of, again, the Microsoft ones with the exception of like the gaming ones, but that's like for my leisure time, the ones that are for, uh for for office and for our email and that type of thing that can that is literally has like a monetary value associated with it essentially like you could boil down me using windows and and i understand windows doesn't actually have that subscription thing that i said but hypothetically if it did if there was a, a microsoft subscription service that just had everything you could boil it down in terms of like how much money it costs or i'm making versus the cost like maybe i'm paying a dollar an hour in terms of my usage and I'm making like 10 an hour or something. Like it's because I use these services so much and I'm using them constantly that it makes sense. I want to have the latest version. I want it to be up to date etc 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 but the issue is that when these other services, like I've said, have come in, it's like, oh here's a subscription, subscription, subscription. Like I have a subscription to a um to a VPN program. It's not even a VPN like like not like nordvpn or any of those it's not like one of those where i vpn my connection it's it's called hamachi i don't know if you guys ever used it and that's so that um we used to we used to do like game servers back in the day in college and so i have like a subscription to that because i use it for a few other things as well it can be used for other things other than game servers but it's still an occasional use and i have a subscription to that i can't even use amazon anymore without a prime membership i mean you can i'm saying but me it's like, I have to have this prime membership now because I use the service so much. Now, admittedly, Amazon is one of those, one of those cases where I am using it quite a bit. Like I said, and I'm probably actually saving more in shipping costs than I am paying for the subscription. So that is a good thing, but it's still like, this is a shop. Like this is essentially a shop, a store, a digital store. And I'm buying it. I'm paying for a subscription. It's like Costco. It's like, what's going on here? Like you're, you're. You're getting dinged every month at every turn now. It's not like I'm getting dinged for my most used things. If if I could pay, if I could pay like, I don't know, $300 for Netflix forever, which it won't happen, but if I could, that'd be great, but it's not going to happen because it's, you know, it's sort of like cable in that it has new stuff all the time, but it's just getting to the point where I'm just getting sick of this constant barrage and like your credit card statement like blows up. And it's not by like thousands or anything like that. It's not like totally out of control because I, I I don't take on new subscriptions lately. But it is still like oh fuck! I, like I didn't realize this was going to be fifty dollars more because I forgot these three subscriptions plus the fact that I own all these domains or whatever plus this plus like all these little things. Like I know and like domains aren't necessarily a subscription, but they're a yearly cost too. And so everything is like a recurring cost. And so it's no longer something. It, like, it's hard to budget things now. Because it's just, like, recurring. And it's, it's intelligent for these companies to do it. And, and and it's the same reason why people will have free apps and then have ads like we're doing. Because that's recurring as well. Because you're almost like a fool if you don't go recurring these days. But in the same breath, it's still taking away... Like, it's still taking it, a, taking something away from the service. It's like, I can't just have this service. I can't just own this app. Like, again, Netflix is a bit different. But, like, if I can't just own... I could just own word, but it's like super expensive upfront like that is one of the the programs that I can still, as far as I know, buy a one time use license where they update it for x amount of time and then it just stops being updated and I can use it in its old traditional sense, but it doesn't really make sense for me to do that it, it's I'm caught in this loop of something being necessary versus something being necessary in the moment. You know if something is necessary and long term necessary, I use it all the time for years to come. If something is like I need it that night and I'm just going to have to sign up for this subscription service, like it's a pain in the ass. One key thing is like I like to kind of mess around with the DSLR here and there and like I don't want to buy, I don't want to buy Lightroom like for the subscription. It's the subscription that's holding me back. If it was like 200 bucks and I got a year's worth of just dis- a year's worth of updates, I'd probably do that. I'd probably do that, honestly, because It's 200 bucks and that's it. It's 200 bucks and that's it. Like, like that's the end of the story. You know what I mean? If, if, if it gets, if it gets old and decrepit over the years, I could pay another 200 or whatever it is and get another one. But I don't like, I'm not, I'm not a rich, like I don't, I'm not getting a rich experience from Lightroom because I don't use it a lot. I'm a hobbyist and people can say, well, they have the, they don't have the full creative cloud thing. Like you don't have to do the whole creative cloud. You could do the photography thing. I don't care. I don't want to pay it. Like I, I, it's 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 just a little ridiculous. Could you imagine a a, um, a subscription for service? Which I mean, there are some upgrade services for your for your cell phone for your smartphone. Could you imagine paying a certain amount? Of, like you're 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 paying off a loan on it. But what if you could like just buy a subscription? And there are similar there are some similar services with updating your phone every year, updating your phone every two years or whatever it is. There are mm-hmm. similar services from carriers or from manufacturers that offer yep. something like that. But I think I think it's honestly. And it's my opinion fully, it's, it's, it's that they're testing the waters for can a subscription work. There's ad supported phones on Amazon to get a lower cost. It's, it's just, we're being bombarded with either mass subscriptions, mass ads, like everything's recurring now. And I think, I think the issue is, is, could you imagine if you paid off? Like if you're one of those people that just buy a car, you don't, you don't take a, you don't take a finance financial plan on it and you just, you just buy a car. Could you imagine buying paying a subscription to like Buick or someone? Could you imagine doing it to like GM for doesn't matter. Could you imagine paying a subscription to use that car? Like the, they have something well, similar it's called leasing or renting, but still it's imagine that was the only option. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's where everything came from. I think it I think it actually trickled down to the to the software industry from cars and from Like that, those industries, right? Because those industries kind of brought it into normal practice to, uh, get someone to pay for something that they don't own on a monthly basis. Like when you're leasing a car, you don't own that car. When you're leasing a water heater, you don't own that water heater. You're paying monthly for something that you don't own. Granted, you're getting the advantages of not having to worry about servicing it as much or something like that. Like I I think with cars, you still have to service them, to be honest, even though you don't own them for whatever reason. Like I'd probably just drive it into the ground until it like ground the, the brakes ground into the rotors. I don't care. It's not my car. Um But like, it, it's, it's, it's a weird system. Um And you're, you're definitely right in those occasional ones. Like if I'm using something occasionally, I don't want to pay for it for a month. I want to pay a one-time fee and use it occasionally for the rest of my life kind of thing. Like, I don't want to deal with the fact that I have to pay for like, and we do pay for it. Like we do pay for, um, the creative cloud for adobe i use adobe very rarely um now granted now my wife uses it more often now here and there so at least we're getting some use out of it but like i use it very rarely i could probably get away with just gimp to be honest um, i think we bought adobe because there was a bunch of times where clients would send us files in adobe's format and we couldn't convert them into gimp or it went in gimp they looked wrong and stuff like that so we we kind of like what choice do we have right, like okay, so then I guess we have to pay monthly for Adobe just for that those occasional clients that send us the uh the files, and that's kind of like the the logic here um
0: and, and also you're not getting value from yeah. that like you're you're helping that client, yeah. but you're not getting the same value out,
1: absolutely not, yeah, exactly like it's a it's a requirement, but it sucks like that we have to pay monthly for that like i I would have much rather paid you know a hundred a hundred two hundred dollars one time and then just gotten Adobe Photoshop and like, and we're not going to pirate it because that's, you know, we're, we're a business. We can't do that. Um, so the other thing is, is that like a lot of companies, like, like you said, with Microsoft, uh, you can still buy a one-time purchase Microsoft office. You're definitely correct about that. I I just checked it. I actually thought you couldn't, but the reason I thought you couldn't was because they do an extremely good job of making it seem like you can't. Like it, it every, every first advertisement you see is for Office 365. Everything that you, when you type in like uh, Microsoft Office, buy Microsoft Office, whatever you type in, it's always going to be Office 365, which is a, a yearly subscription or a monthly, however you want to pay for it, uh, for Office. But the problem is, is that even when you get to the point where you can purchase it, they have like a comparison of the three. Obviously, like logically you go for, like your mind goes for a cheaper price point. So you see in the middle here is a $79 price point a year for Office 365 Personal. Plus you get all these applications like Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, Publisher, Access, like all those things. Uh, OneDrive, terabyte of OneDrive space, Skype, stuff like that. The problem is with... When you go for the other one, the the one-time purchase here, you I, you only get Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. So I, Outlook, no, you don't you don't get Outlook, and it costs one hundred and sixty nine dollars for that one-time purchase. So they're making it very they're making it very clear that they want you to buy the Office three six five subscription. Like it's not like it is a choice, but really, is it a choice? Like, are when you get there, like, are you actually gonna buy the one-time purchase? They're they're making it very. A very deliberate move here to make it so that people buy the subscription and it's 100 percent working because i didn't even know that the one-time purchase existed until you said it right now and i had to go and look it up um so th- these kinds of things are kind of like i don't know if it's just shady business practice or whatever like i understand there again we've discussed it just now why they want to do this um but stuff that i use considerably less than regularly I don't want to pay a, a subscription service for, and you're a hundred percent right. There should be an option. Like there should be an option for me to buy it. Um, I, I don't know. Like that's, I don't really have too much more to add to this because it's just, it is what it is because I don't think it's going to be going anywhere. Like my, in my opinion, it's only going to get worse. Like, I don't think we're going to have ownable applications in the future. I think that all applications, including phone applications, like I think that the phone applications are going to go to monthly subscription services. Like, because like what what I said with weather timeline it's just not sustainable especially cuz all the APIs are now expensive they're monthly and they're they're user based like paying $3 for an application is no longer reasonable to these developers uh who have big teams and like large costs up front they need that like five ten 10 dollars a month uh to be able to maintain their application and that's it i th- i i think the play store will very quickly transition to a more monthly subscription model uh, maybe you'll be able to buy like a package where like you pay $20 a month and you can use these applications and that's going to be within that package or something. I don't know, but I think that that's the future where we're heading to even mobile in, in mobile services and everything else. Like I don't, I don't see one-time purchases being a thing anymore. I know for a fact that AutoCAD, um, cause my dad works in, in the AutoCAD space, uh, has moved completely to a monthly subscription model. You can't purchase a one-time fee, one-time license anymore. You have to purchase it, uh, monthly uh and like stuff like that like even professional software is starting to become monthly right so i don't see it going back
0: i i'm just i'm just trying to like process this i think i it's one of those things where uh i i i really actually agree with your conglomerate thing i think maybe it won't get worse but it's not going to get better maybe at some point, like it might get worse from here, but then it might plateau because eventually people will just not want to pay. And then we're going to see things like the one subscription we're going to see things like, whatever, I'm just making something up. And that one subscription is like, Oh, that's office 365. And that's this, and that's that, and that's this movie service. And we're going to see these companies come out of the woodwork that, that just that deal. Like, basically it's going to be a company that deals with companies that have subscription fees to make packages, to sell you packages sound familiar there cable industry so you know what I'm trying to say like really it sounds sounds like the cable industry trying to sell you mm-hmm. a Bondola of channels and then and then you said there's already that value proposition with office 365 with outlook and whatever else so with if there's a value proposition in a package are you really just going to want to buy netflix for 15 dollars a month or or for 25 dollars a month do you want netflix and one other video service like crave which is in canada and do you want to have Office 365 for six months for free? Oh. And then for an extra $2 a month after that, you can have that Office 365 forever, but for one user. And you can upgrade that for a premium. Yep, That's probably where we're going. That's a really good yep. point. That's probably where we're going. And I'll be there. I'll be there at my visa, getting ready, yep. getting ready and all fired up. Um, But I hate to cut this conversation short. Admittedly, we did... Uh, chatted up pretty good, but I do have to uh, take off because I'm the only, uh, I'm the only uh, person with a car in our in our family at the moment. So I got to take some people to the hospital. But uh, I believe this was a pretty full episode. Unless you have any more concluding notes, there, Mike. Uh, let's uh, close her off for the day.
1: Yep, I'm good to go.
0: All right. So thank you for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can also follow us on the socials via at html all the things. That's on Facebook and Instagram, and also at html everything which is on twitter we are on medium we're also on github and we're also on patreon like we said patreon.com slash html all the things check out the tiers give that a go and feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you are listening to this on and we are signing off Thank you.